you're here for the first time, we're so thankful that you've decided to worship with us today. Uh, we're excited that we are officially in the Christmas season here with New City Church. Uh, so Merry Christmas to you. Um, today we begin to work through the book of Luke. We're going to be starting a new series in chapters 1 and 2 uh, titled The Christmas Spirit, Angels, Prophecies, and the Spirit of God, highlighting the Christmas story as we kind of work our way to Christmas, which means we're going to start today a little different than how we would normally start. Uh, so I need to try to hang with me. We've got a lot of Old Testament kind of we're bringing into the New Testament today, um, but we also have a lot of moving parts. And so I want to introduce the book, introduce the series, and also our primary text, which is going to be the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah the priest, which we'll get to. Um, but first, I want to introduce the book in the series, and we're going to look at the first four verses uh, in the book of Luke to, to get there. So look at verses, uh, chapter, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. This is what it says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That you have certainty that you that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught, and so right off the bat, the author who we know to be uh, he's widely known to be the author. Uh, his, his name's Luke. Uh, fun fact: he was actually close friends with the apostle apostle Paul, and so if uh, Luke he wrote uh, Acts, he wrote the the uh, Luke, and he also wrote. Uh, the book of Acts. So Luke is part one, the book of Acts is part two. And so yes, Luke, he recognizes that there are three other gospel accounts. And he said, but he said it, was, it seemed good to him to write an orderly account. Because Luke, he, he was a doctor, he was a preacher of the gospel, and so he wanted to provide a more detailed account. He knew there were other things uh, that happened around the, the time of Jesus uh, that are not in the other gospels, like the story of the birth, for example, that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. But the book of Luke... It is the most detailed gospel, and it's also written by a guy that was not, uh, he, he didn't have a Jewish background. He was, Luke was a Gentile, meaning he was not a Jew, and so he comes from a different perspective than the other gospel writers. And so he, he states his reasoning for writing the gospel in verse 4, stating, so that Theophilus may have certainty the things that he was taught. That was, that's the name, Theophilus. So the book of Luke was written not to a large group of people, but it was written for one person named Theophilus. And it is possible that Theophilus was just a generic name for anybody that loved God because the name uh, Theophilus, the name means lover of God. But regardless if, it was a, if, if Luke wrote for a specific person or for a generic person, the reason Luke wrote it was for certainty of faith. So the Gospel of John, as we saw a couple years ago, we know was written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here we see that the Gospel of Luke was written so that we may have certainty. The Gospel of Luke was written for those who doubt. The Gospel of Luke was written for those who struggle with their faith. The purpose of the book of Luke, it is to build our faith in Jesus, which leads us to our main idea, um, as we're going to kind of tie all of our, this with our story together, um, which is this. God's glory leads to certainty of faith. That's ultimately where we're going. And I want you to hang your hat there for a second. Because uh, we're going to get there towards the end, but we'll have to do some work to get there. Um, we're going to see a prophetic miracle um, through a famous angel named Gabriel. 
And so we've got quite the journey ahead of us today. Um, and so if, if prophecies and angels and miracles and the supernatural works of God, if those things intrigue you, I think the next uh, few weeks you may find pretty interesting. You know, I, this past week I've done a deep dive into the study of angels, angelology, um, which has been just a lot of fun for me. While at the same time kind of wrestling with um, all of this, how does this all tie together with the certainty of faith? Um, And we'll get there by the end of our journey. Uh, But it shouldn't surprise us that the guy who was a close friend with the Apostle Paul wanted to write a book that was going to help us with certainty while also kind of showing off the supernatural, highlighting the Spirit of God at work, showing angels and prophecies and the Spirit of God. We're going to see it all over the first four chapters of Luke, really. But when we look at all of Paul's writings, a lot of these ideas kind of come out. And Luke, uh, he, they, were, they were close friends. He doesn't fall far from the same tree, which is why we've titled our first series here in Luke uh, 1 and 2, The Christmas Spirit, Angels, Prophecies, and the Spirit of God. And there's all, like, there's all sorts of themes throughout the book of Luke. And one of the, many, the, one of the main themes is the Spirit of God working through Jesus, working before Jesus, and also kind of through his disciples. And as the book ends, the book of Acts, as we see kind of as the, the sequel to it, takes on the same theme. And it continues on with these, many of these same, same themes from the book of Luke. Again, if, uh, if the book of Luke is part one, the book of Acts is part two. And what it uh, shows us is that the Spirit of God did not first come at Pentecost in the book of Acts, but rather the Spirit of God was sealed and promised for every believer after the resurrection at Pentecost, which, uh, which we see there in Acts chapter 2. We see the Spirit of God working all throughout the Bible, but it wasn't until after the resurrection that we see the Spirit of God staying with all of those who profess faith in Jesus. So prior to the resurrection of Jesus, the Spirit of God would come and go. But after the resurrection, for all of us today who profess faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God stays with us. It does not leave us. That's our promise for today. That's, that's our promise to many of what we have today. And so again, leading up to, to Christmas, these first two chapters, we'll, we're going to see the Spirit of God just illuminating in powerful ways. And so, um, like the supernatural, it's just all over uh, the first few chapters of Luke. But again, uh, before we get to our text, I do want to show a quick connection from the past two weeks in Judges, uh, because the entire Bible, I love how it's all connected. Every, the entire, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, one big story, it's all connected. And this, like, this is one of the many reasons we can have certainty of our faith, because it shows how connected the entire Bible is. It's one big book, and it feeds into each other. It's a beautiful thing. And, the, and again, the more we understand the Old Testament, the better we're going to understand Jesus in the New Testament, which is why we regularly preach through the Old Testament. But again, last week, we ended the book of Judges. And the, and the ending of Judges, just to put it nicely, was a bit unforgettable. Like, it, it was pretty traumatic, actually. Uh, like, Holocaust-type uh, trauma um, it's just something that's not forgotten. It's the, book, the ending of the book of Judges would not have been forgotten. In fact, it's one of the single worst instances in Israel's history. It is just terrible. And what I want to point out about that um, for us today, we, we saw all this last week, is that the entire ending of Judges, it highlights the tribe of Levi, which are Aaron's descendants, which to put that in, in, in common terms, is like that's where all the priests come from in the Old Testament. But being from the tribe of Levi, that didn't make you a priest, but you couldn't be a priest if you were not a Levi. So again, priests came from the tribe of Levi. That's where we saw, uh, we saw that, we saw the Levites past two weeks in Judges. 
And so every priest that we see in the Bible, specifically in the, in the Old Testament, even into the New Testament some, we know that they all have a really scarred uh, family history as seen in Judges 17 to 21. Like it's, 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 that they all know their history. And so for us today, as we enter into the book of Luke, we're fast forwarding about a thousand years in history from the book of Judges, and we will see a priest today in our story that would have known the ending to the book of Judges. And the reason I bring up that ending is because in many ways, the ending of the book of Judges that was dark and bleak and painful to just listen to and read, it is that, that, that painful picture, it is a little bit of the backdrop of Luke chapter one. The backdrop of Luke chapter one is incredibly dark. It's like a seemingly hopeless time in history. Like the darkness of the end of Judges, it reminds us of the darkness that we're entering into in Luke chapter 1. And, and no, we don't see what we see, thankfully, uh, in Luke chapter 1, what we saw last week in the end of Judges. It's not as traumatic as we've seen in, as, as Judges. But it is fair to say that the surrounding culture of the time, as, as we kind of enter into Luke chapter 1, the surrounding culture would have been just as dark and hopeless. And so today, as we enter into the book of of Luke, the surrounding scene, it's just dark and bleak. Like the backdrop of Christmas. Whenever we come to the Christmas time, we have to remember that the backdrop, it's, it's dark and, and hopeless, seemingly hopeless. It comes in a time of history that is known of the 400 years of silence. There's no angels, no prophecies, no prophets, no miracles. Nothing has been done for 400 years from God. Like, it, nothing has been reported about or known about from his people. Malachi uh, was the last prophet that spoke 400 years prior to our, to our time today, to our story today. Having a, and he had a word from the Lord followed by a, a long, grueling, silent time in history. But as we'll see, the Christmas story, the Christmas story is God's announcement of hope. It's God's announcement that God has not forgotten us. The Christmas story is God's announcement that, uh, that God is with us. And so as we enter into this Christmas series, yes, we're going to see the supernatural at work, but even more than that, we're going to see hope. We're going to see a fulfilled promise. We're going to see God working among his people. And so over the next several weeks, especially kind of going into our Christmas Eve service, if you know anybody that could use a little bit of hope in their life, I want to encourage you to invite them to our Christmas Eve service uh, to join us here because uh, the Christmas season is a season of declaring that we have hope in the middle of darkness. It's a season of remembering that God came to bring us peace in our turmoil. So we have an incredible, we have incredible good news. We have incredible hope to share um, to a world that's searching for hope. And so that said, let's go ahead and dive into our primary text for today. We're going to go a, a few verses at a time working through our story. Um, so let's start looking at verse 5. So it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And so again, right off the bat, we see the setting here. We see that they were in the days of King Herod. And what we know about King Herod is that it was a, he was absolutely terrible. He was like a, a, a mean guy. This was an absolute, it was a terrible time. Rome was taking over. Like peace was not this time at all. Uh, King Herod was actually known for killing people that were trying to come and, and take over his power. Or maybe he even thought would be a threat to his power. Again, even if it was his own, uh, his own family. Again, just a bad dude. 
And here we are talking about the birth of Jesus, uh, the Savior of the world, being born during his reign. I think we can say that uh, Jesus being born would have been a threat to his power. And so we see our setting being in the days of Herod, but then we're introduced to this elderly couple named Zechariah, who, who was a priest, and his wife Elizabeth. And it says this is an important note. It says they were both righteous before God. They were walking blamelessly before the Lord, uh, which as we saw in the book of Judges, that was not always the case. Uh, The Old Testament priests, as we've seen, get a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, They didn't have a perfect history, but Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were walking closely with the Lord. But there was one troubling detail for them, and is that they didn't have any children. They were past their ability to have babies, which at the time would have been terribly misfortunate because, um, no, they didn't have anyone to take care of them when they got older. 401ks, they didn't exist. Nursing homes, they didn't exist. When the parents grew up, they, 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 they grew up and they lived with their kids and their kids took care of them. And so being barren at the time without kids, this would have been seen as horribly misfortunate. Like, it's almost like a, a sentence to homelessness and poverty. It was a sentence to discomfort in their old age. And so it's fair to say that the, the circumstances of their life would have been very troubling and difficult. But here they are, in their old age, still serving the Lord um, as a priest, even in the midst of their heartache and hardship. Leading us to our first of four points that we'll have today. Number one, continue to serve the Lord in our hardship. Again, we see that they were following the Lord. They were serving the Lord and living a life of obedience, but yet everything in their life, it just seems to kind of be in the pits. Like everything about their circumstances and all, all the things in their life, it seemed a bit hopeless, but yet they still followed the Lord. They could have lost faith. They could have questioned the Lord and lived in doubt, but they still walked with the Lord, even when life was hard. A New City, I, I think we can agree Unfortunately, hardship and heartache, it is just a a normal part of every human experience. Like uncertainty of our future, hardship with our finances and family, heartache over the state of our world or culture. I mean, just the list goes on. Again, unfortunately, this is just a normal part of the human life. It's part of the world we live in, and it leaves us longing for some sort of hope just to grasp onto. And here are Zechariah and Elizabeth, Living in a time of great unrest and uncertainty of, and, and hardship uh, and heartache, just not really sure of their future, and yet they were still righteous and blameless before the Lord, living that way. Like they, they could have, again, they could have thrown in the towel in despair, but they could have turned their backs on God. They could have said, what's the use? And just kind of waffled through life. But no, they were trusting the Lord in their waiting and in their heartache. And I don't know how you come in today, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of you may, may come in with just heavy hearts. Maybe with some sort of looming uncertainty, maybe discouraged, maybe dealing with some sort of, of heartache, maybe grief, or maybe some sort of financial trouble, maybe some sort of sadness or sorrow, or maybe it seems like God is silent and you're just wondering, God, where are you? Maybe thinking, God, what are you doing? Maybe, like, maybe you're praying, God, I just need a breakthrough. Again, that's where Zechariah and Elizabeth were, and yet they continued to walk with the Lord and trust the Lord in their sorrow, in their waiting. And if you're here today, I do want to say, and you're kind of in that, and, and you're just struggling, the God of the universe, he sees you, he knows you, and he has not forgotten you. And if you are a follower of Jesus, 
if we are followers of Christ, we have an unshakable hope to stand on that is holding us up in the midst of our despair. Again, the backdrop of Christmas is darkness and despair, which is why Jesus shines so brightly. And so after the years of waiting and grief and sorrow in their old age, look what it says in verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside of the hour of, of incense. And so Zechariah, he comes in. He's, he comes in to serve the temple. Uh, he's he's going to burn incense. This is a big deal for them. Like this was his moment. This was his one shining moment. This was Zachariah's once in a lifetime opportunity. This is like that World Series moment every kid that plays baseball dreams about. Kind of like game seven of the World Series. Bottom of the ninth. Bases loaded. Tie game. Two outs. Full count. What's going to happen? Like that's the extremity of this moment for Zachariah. Maybe the biggest moment of his life. And we see, his, if we see that his division, uh, the people that he was connected to, they were all on duty to serve at the temple. As, like this, they were serving their priestly duty. And Zechariah, he drew like the short straw, so to speak. He won the raffle. He was able to go into the temple and burn incense before the Lord. Like this was an incredible privilege. This was an honor for, for, for everyone, anyone who was able to do what he's about to do. Very, very, very few people had this opportunity. While everyone else, the whole multitude, it says, says they were outside praying. Well, Zechariah was there in the temple, burning incense. And I just imagine all those people outside of the temple just begging for God to do something with all that's going on, begging God to deliver them from Herod, praying for some sort of deliverance just from this horrific time in history, maybe praying for refuge for God to just do something, to show up in desperation, just pleading before the Lord. And, I can't, and I, can't, I can't help but think of how we see God actually answer those prayers in the years ahead, kind of into the future from now, from, from our time in the story. Because, you know, as we fast forward, we, we do see God show up in the birth of Christ, but then uh, answering those prayers immediately through Jesus at his birth, but also in our text, uh, also eternally and into the future. Like God's answering all sorts. I just imagine all the prayers and we see how many, all those different prayers that are being said by the multitude, they're being answered because over the next 33 years, we'll see Jesus born, walk the earth, die on the cross and rise from the dead as he means to answer their prayer as they're praying outside while Zachariah was in the temple. And just as an an interesting side note, you know, at the end of Luke, the very last verse of Luke, uh, interestingly enough, we see they come back to the temple continually blessing God. So the Gospel of Luke, this book, it begins in the temple and it also ends in the temple. It begins with a pleading prayer. We see them pleading in prayer and the whole multitude is praying and it ends with worship and blessing. And this is not an accident. The author, he knew what he was doing. This was on purpose because the book of Luke, the whole book of Luke, it emphasizes the kingdom of God, bringing God's presence uh, of the kingdom of God down to earth for prayer and worship. Where ultimately one day, our, our promise as followers of Christ uh, is when we see the, the, the kingdom of God fully realized uh, where there will be no temple because the full presence of God will be fully and totally realized on earth uh, where people will be praying just in full joy, just in praying and worshiping the Lord forever and ever. Leading us to say, uh, new city, may we, number two, continue to pray in times of hardship. Again, th- they could have all checked out They could have been apathetic about their faith and ignored God. That's what we saw at the end of the book of Judges. 
But no, rather, these people at this time, they held on to hope. Zechariah, uh, Elizabeth, they were, they were holding on, pleading for God to move, pleading for God to show his glory. And we have to understand when we pray, we're seeking the face of God. When we pray, we're, we're seeking the glory of God as, as kind of we're getting to as, our main, as, our main, as we get to our main idea get further into our main idea. Like we must get this prayer. It's not just a, a, a laundry list of requests. No, prayer is seeking God's face in worship. Prayer is seeking the glory of God. It's coming to God in desperation and dependence. It's coming to God in his worthiness and in our neediness. And so when we stop praying, we stop worshiping. And in many ways, our hardship, as hard as it is, there's no question that it drives us to our knees to cry out to God in prayer. Our heartaches and our hardships, no, they're not fun. No, they're not easy. But we have to understand they can either break, it, break us or they can deepen us. Heart, heartache and hardship like, can so easily move us to despair or apathy. Like They can move us to doubt the goodness of God. They can shake our faith. While at the same time, they can also deepen our faith. They can create in us an unwavering dependence on the Lord, which is just a remarkable gift for us. It grows our certainty of faith on the other side. And what did God's people do in their hardship and heartache? Well, they went to the, the temple and prayed. They sought the presence of God. They worshiped. You see, prayer is how God renews our strength. When we come to God and his word, we don't just read the words, we pray the words. We pray the very heart of God when we pray his words. When we're going through trial and hardship and heartache, God's prescribed method in medicine for our weary souls, it is to cry out to God. Like we are to worship through our weariness. And in these dark and bleak times in the life of God's people during the days of Herod, they continue to cry out to God in prayer. And so may we just refuse to be a prayerless people. May we refuse to be a people that don't just know we should pray, but continually beg God for help and just to worship the Lord in our prayer. But as the story continues, we kind of get further into this, as the people were outside praying, while Zechariah, he had his big moment there in the temple, look what happens. I, I find this fascinating. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, verse 11, standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when, we saw, when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. And so he walked into the temple, burned the incense. He kind of did his priestly duties, and an angel appeared, and he just totally freaked out. The guy got scared. Fear fell upon him, it says, which every time I see this in the Bible, I'm always like, encouraged because me personally, I'm a bit jumpy. I get scared at most things. Uh, and so... When this happens in the Bible, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful because I would do the exact same thing. And as we'll see in the weeks ahead, this actually happens with every single person that, that sees an angel. For whatever reason, whenever someone sees an angel in the, in the Bible, their first reaction is almost always, almost every time, not every time, but almost every time, it's almost always fear. Like it's a terrified fear. It's an awe-inspiring fear. So I've never personally seen an angel but knowing all of this, it does make me, uh, again, I've done a deep dive into angelology this week. It does make me a little curious of what they look like. Again, just another side note here. It does make me curious of how we portray angels with our decorations around Christmas time. You know, the Bible shows them to take on all different forms. Um, some just look like people we see. Uh, some are beautiful. Some are terrifying. Some are animal-like. Um, some are warrior-like. Some have wings. Some do not. 
And what we know from the Bible is that, you know, some angels, they fight in wars and some minister to people, some deliver messages. But almost every time the response is almost fear. And, and I guess my question is, well, which angel are we putting on top of the Christmas tree, right? And then as a follow-up, like, should we be terrified every single time we see these angels? Just a little, just a little food for thought. But as we see in a few verses, this angel is one of the only two named angels in the Bible. There are tons of angels, myriads of angels. We don't know how many, but only two are named. Um, the angel Michael, he's the archangel, uh, which means he's over all the other angels. But the other angel is the angel we see in our text, who is the angel Gabriel. And the only other time we see in Gabriel is in Daniel chapter 9. This is the whole rabbit hole if you want to go look at it later. Over 500 years earlier, um, we see the angel Gabriel uh, telling Daniel all that God would do in the years ahead. And it said there that Gabriel, he had the appearance of, man, of a man. And so Gabriel, he didn't have, no, no wings were mentioned for him that we know of. But here is Gabriel. Uh, and Zachariah doesn't know that it's Gabriel when he's speaking to him at, at this point. But uh, we know that because I've read it. Um, and look what it says. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the people a Lord, uh, to ready for the Lord a, a people prepared. Whew, struggled there. So here's an elderly priest with an elderly wife, and the angel tells them they're about to have a baby in his big moment in the temple. And what I love about this is that the angel says, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. Like, I mean, just imagine the incredible gift that this is. Uh, just imagine how long they've been praying for this baby. And at the end of their life, their, their prayer was finally answered. No, it, the prayer was not answered in their timing, but it was certainly in God's timing. God heard their prayers and he answered them. And look at what else the angel says about, about uh, this baby. He said uh, th uh, he would have joy and gladness, said that he would re many would rejoice at his birth and that he would be great before the Lord and that he must not drink wine or strong drink and he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Again, this is uh, the baby John, John that we know of as John the Baptist. And so what's the, what an incredible promise about their son. And it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. It also says uh, he would turn people back to God and that he would have the spirit and power uh, of, of Elijah, as we kind of see in the Old Testament. But it would be for a specific cause. And so John's specific purpose was to turn hearts. So Zechariah's son, this angel that has promised, again, we know of as John the Baptist, his purpose was to see fathers turn to their children. John's purpose was to see the disobedient turn to the wise and, the prepared, and to prepare the people for Jesus. And so John's role, this baby, as he would grow up, John's role was to point people to Jesus. So John's purpose was, was to be the red carpet for Jesus, so to speak. John's purpose was to highlight Jesus in his ministry. And the angel Gabriel told Zechariah that this would happen. And whenever we look at John's calling and his God-given identity, no, we don't have the exact same calling, but it is very similar. 
And because if we have put our faith in Jesus, if we said, Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior, the same spirit that was in John that directed his life, that same spirit is inside of us. So John's job was to point to Jesus and to help people turn to the Lord. And church, we have the same, same exact calling. We have the same exact power that John had. And at this time in history, uh, John having the spirit upon him was, was like, like that, was a very, that was very unique to him. But for us today, this is the norm for every single follower of Jesus. Again, the spirit of God that we see in the Old Testament and all throughout the book of Luke, it's sealed inside of us as believers who put our faith in Christ. Like if we call Jesus Lord, if we believe that he died on the cross and rose from the dead and believe that he took all of our sin at the cross, the spirit of God, the power of God, it lives inside of us. And that spirit that is inside of us, it leads us to point others to Jesus, leading us to say, number three, point others to Jesus. Like we, we must always be asking, who in our lives are we trying to seek to help find Jesus? Who in our lives are we praying for? Who are we, who are we pleading for? Like there are people all around us searching for hope, searching for some sort of certainty to grasp onto in our world just full of uncertainty, in a world full of darkness and despair. Y'all, we have an incredible hope. We have an incredible foundation, and our hope, his name is Jesus. Our purpose is to help people find that hope that is found in Jesus. That was John the Baptist's call and purpose. And our call and purpose, it is the exact same. We point people to Jesus. You know, we're not trying to be the main show. We point to the main show. And so in the weeks ahead, as we look more at John the Baptist, we'll see that he really, like, he really doesn't do a ton extraordinary. Like, it's nothing's extraordinary. He does some, he does some things, but it, he wasn't that great by earthly standards, but yet he was still called great. And why was he great? Well, not because of himself, but because he pointed to Jesus. He prepared the, the way for people to respond to Jesus and to follow him. John was great because God's spirit was upon him and God declared him great. You know, this is crazy. John, John this, this baby, that's, he, had, he ended his life having his head chopped off. Like the world did not see him as great. The world hated him and the world killed him. But yet he was great before the Lord. He did what God called him to do, and he didn't do what the world wanted him to do. And what I love about this is that every person on the planet, we all have a desire to be something and to do something great with our life. This is like how God created us. Every person has deep within us a desire for significance and purpose. We all want to mean something. We all want to have a lasting effect in this life. We all want to leave some sort of legacy. And what we see from this angel, if we want to have a lasting impact, if we want to have a lasting legacy, what do we do? We point people to Jesus. A lot of these things in this world will come and go. Jobs will come and go. Family will come and go. People will come and go. go. The only thing in life that will last forever are the, is the word of God and the souls, in the souls of men. Like J- Jesus is our sure and steady foundation. And so we may, when we spend our days saying to others around us, look to Jesus, find hope in Jesus. Look at how good Jesus is. Find rest in Jesus. This was the calling on John's life, and this is also our calling. And just maybe the easiest and maybe the easiest next step is just to invite those around us to hear about the hope that we have on Christmas Eve. Again, statistics show that people are just more likely to come during this time. And so maybe just start praying about who you could invite to come and hear about the hope that we have in Christ. And just maybe they'd place their faith in Jesus. 
And so the angel Gabriel, kind of getting back to our story, he gave Zechariah an incredible promise to, about his son. And then look, look how Zechariah responded as we start to get, into our tra- get to our fourth point here, kind of transitioning to that. Look at verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And if I'm being honest, I would have thought the same thing. I'd be thinking there is an angel standing in front of me and telling me something incredible. Like I like what this angel is telling me, but I'd be thinking, hey, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm Zachariah, if I'm Elizabeth, I, I, they'd be thinking, I'm really old. My wife's really old. How's this going to work? Seems to be a reasonable request. But this next thing, this, what the angel does, it's shocking. When I read it the first time, I, I just kind of thought, well, that's kind of odd. Like, why is that? It's kind of strange. Look what the angel said in response. Verse 19. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. There's the name. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. All that seems good. No problems there. Seems right. And then look what he says in verse 20. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak with the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. <laughs> it's like, what? So Zechariah said, hey, how am I going how, how how to know this? And then the angel said, because you've questioned me, and doubt, because you've doubted me, now you're going to be unable to speak until your son is born. I mean, this it seems a little shocking. It seems like the discipline that the angel gave Zechariah doesn't quite match the offense. He expressed doubt and unbelief, and the response that the angel gave him, hey, you're now mute. I'm no judge, but to me it seems a little unjust and unfair. But here's why it's easy to think that way. Because we often think of it in human terms. We often think of it within our understanding of human relationships, kind of like doubting a statement that a friend said is like, a friend makes is true. Like, are you sure the fish was that big? Like, I actually think it was maybe a little bit smaller. But we do that because we know how flawed, like, we can be. We can easily make mistakes. We can easily misspeak the truth. But in this instance, Zechariah, he was in the temple of God, and this was his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be in the presence of God with a whole multitude of people praying for God to move. And then guess what happened? God moved. The angel Gabriel showed up and declared a promise, answering a prayer that Zechariah had been praying for years. And so it seems like Zechariah prayed for God to move, but he didn't really expect God to answer. Like he didn't really expect God to move. Maybe he was apathetic. Maybe he was uncertain. And Gabriel, an angel who walked in obedience, who, who walked in perfect, Gabriel walked in perfect obedience to God. He, the angel, he never, the angels, like they never needed God's grace. They stood in God's presence. They knew God's majesty and glory and perfection. And he, like the angel Gabriel, he was just utterly appalled at Zachariah's response, just even questioning what he heard, shocked of his uncertainty. Because remember, angels, they didn't, they didn't wrestle with uncertainty. They didn't wrestle with doubt and unbelief. Again, angels, they didn't need the grace of God because they were perfect in obedience. Yes, they had the capacity to fall. We see that some did fall. But angels that stayed angels that are still angels have been perfect in obedience all of their existence. And so Gabriel, an angel of the Lord, didn't show grace to Zechariah, but rather showed a consequence of unbelief. And I don't think this should surprise us that Luke, the gospel, 
the, writing the Gospel of Luke for the purpose that we may have certainty is showing an immediate picture of the danger and the uncertainty of our unbelief, of our doubting. Because in many ways, the consequence of Zechariah's unbelief and doubting with Gabriel making him mute, it is a picture just into the nature of the offense. The extremity of the consequence to Zechariah speaks to the extremity of the offense. And so yes, from our human eyes, we may think the consequence of being, becoming mute is very extreme, but it's because we haven't seen the full picture of the glory and the majesty of God as Gabriel has seen. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord, seeing an angel before the Lord, he saw a picture of God's majesty. And as a response, Isaiah, as we see in the Old Testament, he fell on his face and said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And when he saw the Lord, he fell down on his face and he repented, and an angel brought coal for his mouth as a way for him to atone for his sin. And so as we look at the extremity of this consequence with what happened with Zechariah becoming mute and unable to speak, this should lead us to reflect on the danger and the extremity of our doubting and our uncertainty and our unbelief. Which means me to say our doubt and unbelief, which, which we all have, <laughs> we all experience it. This is evidence of our need to see more of God's glory. Like when we're living in doubt and unbelief and we're living in uncertainty of God's goodness, which again, this happens to all of us all at, at times. The remedy and the medicine is to gaze deeper into the glory of God. It's to gaze deeper into the majesty of God. It's to look at Jesus in the gospel and the goodness of God at the cross. The remedy is to seek the face of God in prayer and worship and in his word. The remedy to our medicine of doubting is to say, God, help my unbelief. Show me your gl glory. Show me your goodness. Show me your majesty. While at the same time, this text leads us to be just so extremely thankful for God's grace and patience with us in our doubt and unbelief. Leading us to say, number four, God is gracious, gracious in our uncertainty of faith. So no, Gabriel did not show grace to Zechariah because again, the angel Gabriel never needed God's grace. Gabriel never needed God's patience. Gabriel lived in the full presence of God and so he extended to Zechariah a just punishment for Zechariah's uncertainty. But you and me, each of us who so easily find ourselves in these cycles of doubt and unbelief in just so many different areas of our life, like we are utterly desperate for the grace of God. And because of the cross, because of the cross of Jesus, even in our doubt and uncertainty, God is gracious to us. And we must be clear about this. The grace of God is not given to those who do not believe in Jesus. God's grace is not extended in our unbelief if we reject Jesus. Jesus is our only means for grace and nothing more and nothing less. And so, yes, there is grace in, in our doubt and uncertainty for, for those who do believe, but there's not grace for those who do not believe in Jesus. There's no grace in our unbelief. Of, of rejecting Jesus. The punishment for rejecting Jesus and unbelief, it is far worse than Zechariah's punishment. Zechariah's punishment for his doubt, it had an end date. 
Zachariah's punishment ended when John was born, but for all those who reject the punishment, it who, the, for all those who reject Jesus, the punishment has no end date. The punishment is eternal. It's forever. It's far worse. It's far worse than being una- unable to speak for a couple months. But for all those who call on the name of Jesus, the scriptures tell us, you shall be saved. Grace is available for all those who call on the name of the Lord. So if you're in Christ today and you are following Jesus, may this text today lead us to celebrate the the grace that God shows us day after day after day. The grace that God shows us in our doubting and in our unbelief, things that we're just, when we kind of lose sight of God. And when we struggle to believe that God can do what he says to do, guess what? God is still gracious with us. When we cry out to God in prayer but live in doubt, church, God is still gracious. When we question the goodness and power and faithfulness of God, God is still gracious. And do we stay in our doubt and uncertainty? No, absolutely not. We want to we seek clarity, but God does not shun us and reject us because of it. No, he calls us to come to him. He calls us to see his glory and to see his goodness and to see his faithfulness and power. And when we struggle to see it, where do we look? We look to the cross of Christ. We look to the resurrection. We look to the spirit at work around us. We look to the word of God. We come to God and we cry out to him and we worship as we pray. We worship as we seek more understanding in the character of God. This is what our community is for. We do this together. In New City, certainty in our faith, it is a gift to us. The more we see God and the more we see his beauty and his majesty, the more certain we we can become in our faith. And the more certain we become in our faith, the more we can display God's glory to others and and around the world. And the more certain we are in our faith, the more joy and peace and hope that we can also have in our lives. Like when we're going through hopeless times, when we're going through trials and we're going through uncertainty and uh, we're, we're just kind of like questioning everything in our world and our life, it is incredibly comforting to know how secure we are in Christ. It is incredibly comforting to know that we have certainty in our Savior and that we have a God that loves us and cares for us no matter the season, no matter the hardship. And I can't help but think, as our story kind of ends here today, how Zachariah's encounter, even in his uncertainty and doubt, while while he was being disciplined by the angel, how it just kind of affected others around us, specifically his, his wife, Elizabeth. Look how the story ends. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. (laughs) So Zechariah, he comes out of the temple and he had to learn sign language pretty quickly. So he's trying to communicate what happened here. Um, and at that point, um, everybody knew something was up. Something was happening. God was beginning to stir. And look at verse 24. After, the days, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So get this. Elizabeth conceived... And, and then she said, the Lord took away her reproach among people. The Lord took away her shame, so to speak. The Lord took away Elizabeth's burden by conceiving and having a son who would one day, John, her son, would be born uh, and named John the Baptist. And what would John the Baptist do? 
John the Baptist would then point to the one who would take the reproach of all people who put their faith in him, who put our faith in Jesus. So God took away Elizabeth's shame and disappointment and criticism. And when Jesus came, he came to take on our shame. Jesus came to take on our disappointment and our criticism before the Lord, and he put it upon himself. Jesus took everything that we did, and he put it on himself. And no, it doesn't mean that our circumstances will always be better, but it does mean that God is with us in the midst of our disappointment. It does mean that we're not alone, and it does mean that our guilt is gone, our sin is gone forever, and that God, by the Spirit of God, is working to renew us, to working to renew our strength day after day. And because of that, we can come before the Lord with joy and gladness, with honor and dignity, and we can come before God without sin. In New City, when, when Jesus, when he came down to earth, he came to take our reproach. He came to make us holy and blameless before the Lord. Like when we come to God through Jesus, God looks at us as clean and pure so that we can be in God's everlasting kingdom and we can worship the Lord with hope and peace forever and ever. Like that's, what, that's the hope that Jesus came to bring. Jesus came to bring us a certainty of hope that lasts forever. And my hope and prayer today is if you've never put your trust in that hope, that you would do that today. That you would put your faith and hope in the God that, that wants us to join him forever. It, it began here, it began it began at the cradle and it, it went to the cross and it continues on forever and ever. When we put our faith in Jesus we're putting our faith in a hope that lasts forever. Would you trust that today? Let's pray. God, we, we don't know how you're moving. We don't know how you're working today, but God, we know that we all need hope. God, we all, we all know we need some sort of sure foundation to stand on. God, we know that things around us can crumble and fall and hardship will come, but God, we know that in Jesus Christ, we have a firm foundation. God, I don't know who's here, who's working, how you're working in the hearts of people, but if there's anyone here that needs to place their faith in Jesus and give your life to them, would you, would you work in their heart? Would they surrender their life to you today? And would they tell someone? God, we ask that they would, you would continue to work and we'd come around them and love on them. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.